I think the reality is, is that as neurodivergent individuals, we have all experienced the entire of our lives living on the periphery almost of societal norm. We have all experienced different situations where we haven't done the expected thing. We haven't spoken in the expected way. We haven't behaved in the way that other children or adults or whomever might behave. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, we are going to waste no time and get right into episode 92, in which I interview Sharon McCarthy. Sharon is the founding director of Autism Journeys, a training and consultancy service based in Cork, Ireland, where she supports autistic children and young people and their families from both an advocacy and educational standpoint. Sharon is also the host of Autism Journeys, the fabulous radio show and podcast centered on sharing the stories and perspective of members of the worldwide autism community. Sharon has worked in the autism field in a number of capacities over the last 20 years. She lectures in University College Dublin, coordinates and delivers autism-centric courses in her local community college, and delivers autism-specific training workshops to different disability and training services across Ireland. We talk about her incredible journey as a mother to multiply identified neurodivergent children, which led her to become a fierce advocate for her kids. And more recently, this journey has led her to being identified as both autistic and as having ADHD. And she's now finally empowered to be her authentic neurodivergent self. We also talk about the dual diagnosis and the overlap of traits, how autism presents in girls and women, and how the definition and understanding of autism has changed over the years, as well as when it might be time to seek an autism diagnosis, either for your child or yourself. This was a fantastic conversation and interview. You're going to love it. Enjoy. All right. So Sharon, I usually start out my my first question is almost always kind of what was going on in your life for you to start connecting the dots when it came to ADHD. But I want to start differently with you because you have such an interesting, unique background in terms of this journey of neurodivergency. So you started, let me get this all straight. You started the Autism Journeys radio show and podcast five years ago or six years ago. Five years. Yeah. Five years ago, as a parent who had children who were diagnosed with autism and other additional needs. That was, I was going to say, you use a beautiful phrase. So you kind of started this as a parent who was looking to get more information and to help her children. And over the course of this time, you've really kind of learned a lot about yourself. So I will stop talking and ask you, how did this journey start for you with the radio show? Why did you, what made you want to start it? And then I think, you know, we can get into your own diagnoses for yourself. Perfect. As you rightly said, I'm a mom to multiply identified autistic kiddos who have other co-occurring conditions, including ADHD, I suppose, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, sensory processing disorder, learning difficulties, and so on. Um, and I suppose when I initially, when, when I was first, I, we'd say identified as an autism parent specifically, there was very, very few supports available in our catchment area here in Southern Ireland. Um, and I suppose I felt that in order to best meet my children's needs, I needed to um, upskill and educate myself and figure things out and best position myself to support them in whatever way they needed uh, needed to be supported. Um, I suppose it, I went back to college as a person in my early to mid 30s and spent a number of years studying autism and so on and so forth. Um, and I suppose during that time, I found myself meeting more and more parents of children, neurodivergent kiddos who were not receiving any support either. Um, and I suppose I just felt that I had a, I, I had some level of knowledge and some level of, of where to begin, I suppose, in information that might need to be shared. And so I decided that, you know, if I, if like, wouldn't it be wonderful to maybe help support other families and other parents and so on. 
supporting their little people as well. So I suppose that's where it was born from, quite literally. Now, I was, I will credit um, a friend of mine who was a wonderful uh, drama teacher. She she lived in the States for quite a number of years and so on. Um, and she persuaded me initially to kind of step into it because I was very apprehensive that I might not be the best person and I don't have a great radio voice and I don't have this and I don't have that. Do you know that kind of negative kind of conversation that goes on? But actually, um, it's probably one of the best things I've done. And it's definitely one of the things that I'm most proud of. Isn't it incredible to sort of I, I've I've loved thinking about how I learn best is through this medium, right, of, of asking questions and having these conversations. And it's really sort of helped me help shape kind of my relationship with learning, because I always sort of thought I wasn't much of a student. I, you know, wasn't very smart. And and so I feel like, you know, this whole journey for me of, of having these interviews and reaching out to people and learning through lived experiences has been really eye-opening and just kind of the different ways in which we educate ourselves and help ourselves. And then, as you said, in turn, help our children and help our family. And having a podcast where I interview women who were diagnosed in, in adulthood, uh, you know, I've beat so many women who came through their own diagnosis through their children. But I feel like yours wasn't quite as simple because I honestly, my question is like, what was going on behind the scenes over the course of these years talking about autism in, in as a parent where it's you sort of started to shift your spotlight, I guess, so to speak, on yourself and think like, I am also what autism looks like because we have this idea of what autism looks like. And I feel like the conversation has shifted so much over the past few years in terms of like, what does autism look like in children? What does it look like in girls? What does it look like in adult women? So what was going on for you behind the scenes? So I suppose for me, um, I know when I first started studying, as I say, um, there was lots of talk around autism and those kind of core areas of uh, identification that are kind of included in, the, the, in that diagnostic process. And for me, I found that I was kind of looking and I was Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And I can remember a lecturer specifically saying to me in the same way that a medical student will immediately feel like absolutely they've got every medical condition that they're looking at, that that will kind of dissipate and that it will settle and that everybody most most likely is feeling like this, but that things will settle within the first couple of months or whatever. Um, and that was back in Jeepers was that 2010, 2011 time. Um, and I was kind of going, OK, so I was waiting for this to to dampen down these feelings, to dampen down, and they didn't. Um, and I suppose the more I sat with it, the more I kind of started analysing different areas and different con conversations that I've had and different kind of interactions that I've had and so on. Um, and I suppose I was looking and I suppose I suppose to outline, for me, my two, like I have six kiddos um, and I only have one daughter. Um, so five, like five of my children are, are little boys. And I suppose I was looking at myself through the lens of, what my understanding from a little male perspective might be. And I was going, I don't know. I don't know. Should I or shouldn't I? And so on. And um, should I find out about this? And it was kind of bubbling up and going back down and so on. Um, and I suppose back in maybe about 2016, I sat with it for a little while and I was kind of thinking, actually, I think this makes a huge amount of sense for me. But it still took me another while to, to even consider going about an autism diagnosis. During that time, my daughter was identified as well and so on. So there was all this kind of, I suppose, I was trying to model for my kiddos how to be your authentic self, but I wasn't living that truth, if that makes sense. Believe it or not, it took me four more years to go about an autism diagnosis. And just at the beginning of the pandemic, back in 2020, I decided that I had, I had had enough of being unkind to myself, giving out to myself all of the time, telling myself that I wasn't good enough for it, that I was always making mistakes or, you know, those, those kind of real self-deprecating kind of comments. And so I went about an autism assessment. And at that time, the clinician did tell me that, yes, I do believe that you, you, you meet the criteria for autism. However, I don't know, do you need the piece of paper? Because the reality is, is if it was for me, I'd hate anybody to know that I was autistic. And I remember feeling, oh, sweet mother of God, this is just awful. This it, it had the complete um, opposite um, effect, if that makes sense. It, it didn't allow for me to become kinder to myself. And I found myself um, not feeling ashamed, but very, very slow to share my autism diagnosis with anybody. 
um, at all so much so that there was maybe three or four people um, who in my very close circle who knew that I was autistic so much so that I actually decided back in just in January of this year um, to go about another assessment um, and at that time I met with a gorgeous woman called um, Barb Cook She's one of the authors of Spectrum Women Walking to the Beat of Your Autism. And she she's now she's the opposite side of the world. She's in New Zealand and she um, we, like I had a, a bit of a chat with her and she immediately said to me, she said, Sharon, I think that you um, you remind me so much of myself. And not only do you remind me of myself in the context of autism, you also remind me of myself in the context of ADHD. I am an ADHD as well. Um, and I suppose I kind of went Jeepers. Okay. Um, and I suppose that's where I, I suppose uh, with regards to the autism piece, I think that 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 conversation I had with Barb in January, where she confirmed for me my neurodivergent identity, but I but confirmed it in a very kind way that it was then that I absolutely stepped into who I am. Um, and it, it definitely had the wonderful effect of empowering me to become kinder to myself and less critical of myself and I definitely feel more empowered to be my authentic self. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah you know I feel like a diagnosis regardless of whether it's ADHD or or autism I think any sort of confirmation of neurodivergency provides you with a language it provides you with a validation to then start to assert yourself, to ask for what you need, to understand why you are doing what you're doing, to have that kinder conversation with yourself, right? I talk about this a lot on the on the podcast about how, you know, the diagnosis is such a revelation to us in terms of our in our narrative, in terms of our self-talk, in terms of just how we look at ourselves. And yet it can be so disheartening when we talk about it with other people who really don't understand um, what the diagnosis means. And they start thinking, oh, I'm sorry, you, I'm sorry about your disorder, you know, and, and all of these ways in which it can be really difficult to talk about with outside of your inner circle. And how sometimes my advice is just not to talk about. <laughs> and I don't know if that's the best advice, honestly, because I feel like, you know, there's those of us who are living out loud and have, you know, doing as much awareness raising as possible for changing the, changing the view around neurodivergency. But at the same time, like when it comes to yourself and your own life, like sometimes the diagnosis is enough for you and your journey and it gives you the validation, but it, you don't necessarily have to always be talking about it. But then I'm like, well, are we doing are we doing a disservice to neurodivergency by not talking openly about it always, even in those uncomfortable moments? Because, um, you know, then we're just perpetuating stereotypes and we're perpetuating the stigma. And I never know, but I'm always it's so it is really difficult when you come up on people, like you said, with your initial diagnosis, which was like, oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk like, do you really want this? Is this really something you want to talk about or need or be open about? Yeah, I kind of think that with regards to that, with regards to, to whether or not somebody is loud and proud or whether or not somebody is very quietly confident, it absolutely should be and has to be centered on the individual's choice. There should be no pressure for anybody to to, to out themselves or to be outed. Um, and equally, there should be no no pressure on anybody to have to stay quiet if they if they choose not to. For me, my young lady um, it was identified as an ADHD just at Christmas. Um, so just before I was identified, um, I suppose my oldest son at the moment is going about an ADHD assessment and so on as well. Um, and he is uh, he's identified as autistic and dyspraxic and all kinds of everything, um, if that makes sense. But nonetheless, um, I suppose I think about her. I think about her specifically and I kind of think that, you know what, it's so important that she is empowered with the knowledge and with the confidence to know that if I choose to share this, that it is absolutely great that I do and that I shouldn't be met with judgment, that I shouldn't be met with unkindness, that I should be met with an absolute acceptance of who I am for my authentic self. Um, and I suppose that's why for me specifically, I kind of, I, I feel it important that I do start to become loud and proud um, in relation to my neurodivergence of late, but equally I come from a space of absolute respect for the individuals who are very quietly confident and choose not to share that. Mm -hmm. 
I agree. And I feel like it's my impulsive ADHD side that <laughs> leads me to open my mouth before I think. And so in some ways, I feel like it's it's a benefit because I, I, I live loud and proud in a way that I feel like can be helpful. But I also feel like I'm not necessarily at the wheel with that. There's There's no intention behind that, right? I have so many questions about like, how do you even know what is ADHD and what is the autism? Because that's a question I have all the time. And often I get like, even on this podcast, I get so like, confused where I'm like, what are we even talking about here? Because there's so much overlap. And I often like I have these videos on on Instagram of these like quirks that I always thought were, you know, just quirks of mine that I realize now have have to do with ADHD. And oftentimes I will get the response, which, you know, especially if I'm talking about sensory issues, lighting, sound, particularity around like what mug I use and, you know, um, or, or things like any social or interpersonal issues. Uh, if I talk about those, uh, the response I will often get is that's an autistic trait. That's not ADHD. And I'm like, how do you even know there's so much overlap? And part of me doesn't want to get into that narrative of like, well, maybe I do have autism. Like part of me feels like that's really kind of casual and and in some ways disrespectful. I haven't had an autism diagnosis. I've, I have had an ADHD diagnosis, so I feel comfortable talking about the ADHD part. But there's always these areas where I feel like we're, there's so much overlap. And then am I being, am I doing a disservice to the autism community? You know, is it ableist of me to talk about these traits only in the context of ADHD and not in a larger framework of autism and neurodivergency, which is and that's that's when I get to that point where I'm like, what are we wait, what are we even talking about? Because I, I sort of feel like I'm more comfortable talking about neurodivergency and the fact that we all kind of fall in this camp. And maybe some of us have been diagnosed with ADHD. Maybe some of us have been diagnosed with autism, but I could be totally wrong. Like, do you feel like there's a clear delineation having been diagnosed simultaneously with both where you can really say this is the autism, this is the ADHD? I like for me, I suppose, for, in my personal experience, I think that kind of anxiety around having to engage from a social perspective, I would absolutely attribute that to um, autism. I kind of think that that kind of that, that the minute that there is any social pressure or social expectation placed upon me, that that is absolutely like that is absolutely autism, in my opinion. And um, I suppose in my experience, rather. Um, but I'm mindful that at the same time that like. I, I think current stats are between 72 and 74 percent of autistic people are identified with a co-occurring um, ADHD diagnosis. So it's very, very hard to unpick and to pull one or another. I suppose like when I think about um, stimming, for example, I stim as an autistic person, but I also stim as an ADHD. And I I suppose that fits beautifully into both categories. So I suppose it's not possible to decide whether or not one is more uh, more ADHD like or more autism like, if that makes sense. I kind of think that it speaks to our experiences and, uh, and that we can only speak to our own true experience that it like isn't it much, I suppose, isn't it much more uh, beneficial that these conversations are happening and that sometimes that the lines are a little bit blurred because then it allows for people to figure out where where each of their traits or each of their kind of um, presentation pieces sit for them. If, if it's very clearly put in a box, then it's going to make it more difficult to identify adults who might be late diagnosed ADHD. If, if it's very clearly put into an ADHD box, um, it might be much less likely that a person might be identified as an autistic person, as a much older person. There's that balance piece, definitely. I suppose the other thing that I'm thinking about with regards to autism specifically for me, for me, whilst I'm very proficient at speaking about autism, um, and I suppose I, I'd be quite proficient at speaking about ADHD as well. For me, it's not possible for me to split, split myself down the middle. The reality is, is that all of my experience to date have been shaped by being an autistic person and being an ADHDer. Do you know? Yeah. I do, but you haven't cleared anything up for me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm so- no, I know. It's, I, I, and that's the other thing is sort of like, I feel like obsessive about getting to the root of what we're even talking about sometimes into a point where I just feel like I'm frustrating myself for no reason, you know, because oftentimes the answer will be like, well, does it really matter at the end of the day? And I'm like, I don't know why, but it does. 
doesn't that speak to that absolute wonderful ability to be able to hyper focus and go down that kind of monotropic road and be able to just focus to to that level to, to that level of intensity and I suppose even in that even in that unfortunately in itself can be both autistic and ADHD I suppose hyper focus can be but doesn't it speak to the absolute wonder of a neurodivergent mind at the, the, the same time whether or not they're categorized as autistic or ADHD. Right. I know. Exactly. And I'm like, if there's ever evidence enough that you're in the right place, having the right conversations, it's that obsessive drive for the answer. But, you know, when you were talking about stimming and kind of how stimming can be, uh, you know, how, how you sort of deeply relate to it from an autistic point of view, but also from an ADHD point of view, I also think about the term masking, right? Because that's another one that masking was really a term that was used primarily in the autism community. And has and there has been some some controversy about whether it's been co-opted by ADHDers as, you know, in, in an ableist way. But I think, you know, it's sort of like you're saying, masking is one of those things where we really, so many of us relate to it so deeply because it comes back to that idea of not living as your authentic self and having to kind of fit yourself and feeling like a square peg in a round hole and all of those ways in which we are kind of looking over our life through this new lens, realizing the degree to which we had to work to fit in, the degree to which we had to work to keep it together. And like, I feel like masking is one of those terms that so many of us relate so deeply to. And and is that co-opting or is that just a deeper level of, of understanding in terms of how this conversation around neurodivergency is evolving? I think the reality is, is that as neurodivergent individuals, we have all experienced the entire of our lives living on the periphery almost of societal norm. We have all experienced different situations where we haven't done the expected thing. We haven't spoken in the expected way. We haven't behaved in the way that other children or adults or whomever might behave. The reality is, is that when you are a person who experiences the world slightly differently um, to the majority of the, uh, of people in the world it doesn't matter whether where you where you're positioned uh, on the globe the reality is is that when you experience things differently like this masking is one of the most frequently utilized ways and means with which to protect ourselves from additional judgment and additional onslaught of kind of comments and uh, like negative negative comments and kind of that that real kind of negative experience. Um, now, I suppose I, I don't absolutely, as well you know, I wouldn't ever advocate that people should have to mask. But I suppose I'm mindful that in my experience, again, that I have absolutely masked and masked to the high heavens, as we say here, uh, here in Cork, because of knowing that I didn't quite fit the norm in inverted commas, but that knowing that I also didn't want to be the the the, the victim of that awful judgment and that awful critique that I have experienced, I suppose. Yeah, I'm sort of going through this with my daughter right now, who's in high school. Um, and when I first started out on this journey and was first diagnosed with ADHD, I looked at my son, who's in fifth grade, and I thought, yes, textbook, absolutely. He has it as well. I didn't come to my diagnosis through my children as most adult women do. So I've been like looking at them and seeing so many neuro neurodivergent traits in both of them, but also learning on my own and, and trying to, you know, figure out what is the right path. Uh, and they both do very well in school. It is really important for them to do well. They're very competitive with themselves. They have very high expectations of themselves. And so they don't kind of present in a very typical ADHD way, which is why I have always been really reluctant to just go through their school district or, or, you know, you know, just go to the pediatrician because I'm I feel very protective of these this diagnosis journey for them. Right. I don't want to fuck it up is basically <laughs> my yeah. anxiety around it. And so um, with my daughter, but I've, I see her now in high school really struggling with a lot of executive function issues, but at the same time, still holding it together, still doing very well at school. And a lot of it is internalized. A lot of it is at home and that only she is experienced, you know, that only I am seeing and, and, and her father is seeing. So we're going through this diagnosis process right now and, and they want to reach out to her teachers. And I panicked because I realized 
her teachers are not going to see any of these signs. They're going to have no idea why we're doing this. They're just like, they're going to be totally in the dark. And it, it really kind of hit home how how hard my children are working to present as as this certain type of, of do-good, you know, perfect uh, gold star child and seeing how that's the anxiety and, and how negatively that's affecting their mental health as a result. And so to me, that's a clear sign of neurodivergency. But I'm also realizing that like to the teachers, they're going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And and how that narrative is so prevalent with children, right? That idea that like, I don't know, they're doing fine. I don't see what the issue is that there's, you know, that there's a sense that like, asking for help or asking for accommodations is not allowed unless you are really, really struggling or really incapable of conforming or all of those things that get children with the sort of stereotypical traits diagnosed, but this large swath of kids who are who are being overlooked. Yeah. I suppose, doesn't it speak to the level of lack of education there is amongst the, or within the education system that our children have to navigate every day. Doesn't it absolutely speak to them, the, the fact that so many educators, so many teachers, be they in like primary or secondary school, it doesn't matter. Doesn't it speak to how much they've got to learn? My experience would have been similar here insofar as I've got young people who absolutely, they go into school every day. I have been the person or the parent who has questioned, um, why why did you go about um, a diagnosis for your child? She's like, I mean, why would you label him as autistic? that child isn't autistic and me looking saying excuse me excuse me it it just I suppose it beggars belief that these people are involved in any diagnostic process that we undertake for our children when they don't hold the level of education that they need to to ensure that these kiddos who are masking and who are flying under the radar actually have their needs met and I suppose the reality is is that there needs to be that absolute shift from only looking after and meeting the needs of a kiddo who is hugely struggling from an outward perspective perspective to actually ensuring that there's that kind of equitable accommodation for our kids who internalize everything as well because every child deserves every opportunity to become their best selves and to realize their potential and educators need to get off of their arses and actually start upskilling and educating themselves so that they're meeting the needs of these kids and I say that as an adult educator. So I suppose I get it if that makes sense from an education standpoint as well. But it, they have to. They have to because otherwise, I mean, the mental health crisis isn't coming from nowhere. The mental health experiences of our children aren't happening for no reason. In order to support our kiddos to be mentally well adults who aren't going to experience different suicidalities and real negative um, I suppose institutionalizations and hospitalizations and so on they really have to start getting in there now and meeting their needs so that these kids don't fall off a cliff so that they don't hit 18 and fall off of a cliff because they don't know where to go or what to do next oh man it's so heavy <laughs> because it's true like my apologies. I suppose I'm sorry, but I suppose it, it's so important. It is so important. It's so frustrating. It's just it makes me so cross to think. I mean, I see these adults, I see women being identified, being diagnosed with depression and bipolar and all these kind of things all of the time. And um, when in fact they're either undiagnosed autistic women or undiagnosed ADHDers. I mean, get off your arses and sort it out so that these women aren't reaching that point of crisis. Let's make sure that our kids are positioned properly now so that we're not dealing with a both a teen and an adult epidemic of mental health crises. Mm, yeah, that's a question I, I bring up a lot on the on the podcast, too, which is does it feel like we are going through a mental health revolution right now, either as a result of the, you know, I think it was kickstarted by the pandemic, certainly it was kickstarted by lockdown and, and, and the changes in so many of our structures and, and also just sort of this increased awareness that's happening on social media and, and people being able to communicate and share their stories, you know, but I'm always questioning, like, is this, is this proliferation of diagnoses 
the result of this new awareness and the shifting conversation around what to look for and what what even is considered neurodivergency and or are we misreading it and it's totally something else like a collective communal trauma that we're all going through that is temporary (laughs) because you know what I mean like and then again I get back to that idea where I'm like well I think this obsessive questioning over what it is and what it isn't, you know, is the neurodivergent experience. Um, Is it harmful to expand the idea of what ADHD and autism is to a point where people are kind of being lighthearted about it? Be like, oh, yeah, you know, because we talk about that a lot with this idea that like, oh, everybody's a little ADHD. Everybody has that a little. And, and, And is that... That feels like, you know, a disservice that feels really belittling to people who have really been struggling. I guess my question is really about the expansion of what is autistic, right? So I feel like we had a very frank stereotype of kind of what an autistic child looked like, how they acted. Um, They were, you know, who was easy to kind of spot. And now it feels like we're expanding this definition. We're expanding the idea of what autism looks like in children and in adults. And is there any part of you that feels like this could be dangerous, but almost like we we can start blurring the lines, so to speak? Or is it really, at the end of the day, is it really just about learning how to advocate and learning how to, you know, not try to always just fit and conform? I suppose when you think about it, when you think about, we'd say autism, for example, and the fact that it's say it's centered around social communication and social interaction and those kind of in official terms, restricted interests and repetitive patterns of behavior and so on. When you think about it like that, the reality is, is that individuals are going to struggle whether they have the label or not. Individuals who have difficulty with social communication and social interaction are going to struggle regardless. And for now, unfortunately, because there's not that shift and that societal shift and societal awareness uh, and I suppose absolute acceptance of individuals for just who they are. Because that isn't happening, it is absolutely necessary as of yet to label individuals. And I suppose for me, I always kind of think about um, label being an, having a label being empowering because it allows for us to have a greater level of understanding and awareness and knowledge around ourselves, if that makes sense. I suppose separately, though, when I think about autism from from a diagnostic standpoint, in we'd say when I was a little person, the DSM, so the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, was in it was in its third edition at that time. And for me to be identified as autistic um, as a little person of two or three, um, it would have been necessary for me to be completely non-speaking and to have it like had a full regression um, in speech and so on, be completely non-speaking and to be unable to engage with those around me, so to speak. In 94, they introduced the DSM-4, it was the Asperger's was brought in and so on and so forth. And then in 2013, it was shifted again, the DSM-5, and it became um, just autism levels one, two and three. The reality is, is that whether or not we've got the labels, these individuals are going to have difficulty in those moments. But also, I suppose the reality is, is that by expanding it, you are creating opportunity for more people to actually recognize who they are and to gain that level of knowledge and understanding of themselves and by gaining that level of knowledge and understanding we are positioning individuals then to be set up for success and to realize their potential and to become their best selves and so on so i suppose whilst i i I get the question around um, that kind of blurring alliance and so on the reality is is that i've got some really good friends who without doubt i would look at and i would say definitely not autistic absolutely nowhere are they autistic um, and do you know what i mean so there's that real strong group of non-autistic individuals it's really important that individuals like who are autistic are equipped with that information and um, so that they are set up for success as well. And um, I don't think that there's a problem with blurring alliance. The reality is, is I think the current global statistic is about 1.5% of the global population are being identified as autistic. It's important that those individuals have that information about themselves. Yeah, that's a good reminder too, because I think sometimes I forget, I, I surround myself with women with ADHD all day long. And so I sometimes I forget that it is such a small percentage still in this world because I, you know, I sort of feel like I look around and I'm like, is anyone not 
neurodivergent around yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have a saying in our house, um, it's um, like, it's gama. So gama is the Irish is very good. If it, it, that's the Irish for very good. But oftentimes what I'll say is uh, like we say tick box, like so we're going tick box. And in school, if you get something right, um, as a young person, the teacher will say gama. We'll write down, we'll give loads of red ticks and we'll say gama. So the joke in our house is always now gama. Gama, as we see these neurodivergent individuals and so on, it's always that kind of gama. I've, I've phone conversations with that gama. Yes, absolutely. So I get it. I, I do. I, I absolutely get it. I think, doesn't it speak to the level of community, actually? Doesn't it speak to the level of community when you say that you, you have so many people around you who are females uh, identified with ADHD? Doesn't it speak to, speak to that absolute wonderful connection piece? And the, the, the opportunity to have that wonderful, uh, holistic and positive community around you. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And how important it is to find, you know, how we do find each other and how important it is for us to have that community. And, and I often will say, like, I think finding your people is part of the treatment plan because we speak, it's like we speak a different language. And I, I say, I say, you know, I feel like I'm at home in a way that I really, I forget. I don't feel like with many, many people. And, you know, I, I say like talking to other women with ADHD is like unbuttoning a too tight pair of jeans because it really is just sort of like you, we just cut right to the chase and you just, you get right in there and we have these healing connections that are yeah are, are i think is so important to us as because so much of this adult diagnosis is shifting that narrative and and thinking and changing our point of view of ourselves and who we are in this world so yeah absolutely it's been it's so much of my own healing and treatment has been just conversation and and meeting other women like you I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. Okay, so I'm curious, because you, you know, obviously did not have these glaring presentations when you were a child, what are some of the things looking back now over the course of, you know, looking back at your life where you, where you say the signs were there all along, like as a, as a parent of a daughter, like what should somebody be looking for? So I suppose she's so different to me. First of all, she is this real witty, real funny, real great, vivacious character, this gorgeous, um, really gorgeous, gentle, kind energy. But I, I know that she's very quick. She's very quick in any kind of response, that kind of real, real kind of witty kind of response. I wouldn't be very quick off the mark. That's the first thing to say. So I suppose 
uh, like both of us would be so different, but yet we kind of, we, we absolutely gel so well. And I think that if you've got a little person who is a neurodivergent individual, oftentimes we'd say my relationship with my neurodivergent, like with my daughter particularly, is so much stronger, I think, because we are so similar in some ways then at the same time, that there is that connection piece, that there is that communication without judgment. And there is that kind of attuning to each other without judgment and kind of just getting what we mean. That's my brain now going off in a million different directions. My apologies. Um, but I suppose that's an important point to make, I suppose, is that sometimes we identify ourselves and our kiddos. That's like that. that that's absolutely um, the piece. I suppose for me, when she was identified back in December, the clinician at the time, um, so I'm not sure about uh, stateside, but here um, individuals are identified through either multidisciplinary teams, so psychology and and OT and so on, or individuals can be identified by psychiatrists. Um, and it was a psychiatrist who identified my young lady. Um, and at that time, my understanding on a very serious note before that was that male, that little boy, that kind of cis male presentation where kiddos are bouncing off the walls and they're jumping around the place and they're the fellows who are running out into the middle of the road and all that kind of a crap. The reality is, is my daughter never presented like that. Never, never, never presented like that. And it was only when she was asked the right questions by her psychiatrist that it came to light that her brain never stops, never stops. Her brain goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And I remember sitting there in the meeting going, her brain never stops. And that's not normal. That's not normal. Do you know, um, kind of going, jeepers, because I have definitely, without doubt, I am the person who will start talking and will lose my trail, like will lose, will will almost like stop in mid-sentence sometimes because my brain has gone off on a completely different tangent. I'm the person who will wake in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And as my eyes open, my mind starts going. There's no um, kind of, okay, actually, where am I? There's not even that, there's not that kind of transition from one point to the next, if that makes it's just going all of the time. And this was always the way. And um, as a little person, I was the per I was the kid who always talked at length, at length. Always, always, always. It was like teachers um, at parent teacher meetings used to say to my mother, "Can you just tell her to stop talking, please? She has to stop talking. She has to give other people the opportunity to to answer questions and so on." Um, and I can remember being a pain in their arse with the the teacher, teacher, teacher trying to answer questions and so on. Um, I suppose in relation to that, you mentioned a while ago that you tend to say things uh, like without thinking. I am the impulsive thinker. I am absolutely the impulsive thinker and the impulsive talker where I say things like, oh, God, why did I say that? Why did I say that? Sugar reverse, reverse. And then I try and repair what I've said midway through a conversation. And it's just, it can become a disaster, an absolute disaster. That has always been my, always been my experience. Absolutely. And I suppose to come back to your your question earlier on, that's definitely for me, because it wasn't centered on those kind of real areas of interest. That for me is definitely ADHD and not autism. Absolutely. Definitely for me, ADHD and not autism. I suppose the other thing that I'm thinking, like I like I can remember being the person who oftentimes would try and figure out, OK, so like we'd say when I'm engaging with somebody, having to process what's going on or what's being said or whatever the case may be. Before they'd finished what they were saying, I had my next step planned out and I was kind of coming at them immediately, if that makes sense. When I was little, I stimmed hugely. Um, and unfortunately, stimming, like in our house, I encourage kiddos to stim all of the time. But unfortunately, many moons ago, stimming was even less acknowledged as uh, as functional. It wasn't acknowledged at all, let's be honest. But I stimmed and stimmed and stimmed all of the time. I was the, like, I used to rock and I used to do all kinds of, uh, of everything. You see my hands are moving on screen nonstop. Um, and I suppose this is a processing piece. This is how I kind of focus my thoughts almost this is something that I have always 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 even from the littlest stage I have always done this and um, I suppose I can remember too um with regards to school and studying and so on like I did fine like in in Ireland here we do an exam called the leaving certificate so it's that kind of the, the exam that you might do at about 18 years of age and I remember like I to have to study and prep for an exam 
I found it absolutely impossible, not being able to focus, not being able to take information and trying to figure out, as you mentioned um, a while ago, with regards to that kind of um, organising our thoughts, organising what we need to do next and so on. That can be so, so like that for me was so, so difficult and um, figuring out the kind of a learner that I was. Am I um, like I'm definitely not a learner who can sit and just look at something and take note. I am a, like I'm definitely a kinesthetic learner. I'm definitely an auditory and a visual. I like I'm a, I, uh, that kind of multimodal learner is the way I'm going to put it. But the reality is, is that because I didn't have that information about myself when I was littler, I wasn't able to study. I wasn't able to prep. I wasn't able to kind of take large pieces of information in focus on what I needed to focus focus on and I suppose when I think about hyper focus I definitely 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 was the person when I was little who became very very focused on a particular topic and had to figure everything out about it had to couldn't give up if I was talking about something couldn't give up about what I was talking about until I had said everything I needed to say about it and I know that that can be sometimes um, attributed to autism but for me it was both because there was that kind of real now retrospectively I suppose I know that there was that real intense brain piece involved in that as well that real kind of ten- intense cognition around that as well I suppose the other thing that I'm absolutely mindful of is that kind of inertia that I would have also experienced where I would have found it difficult to organize focus to engage with the task at hand so depending upon whether I was interested in that for some tasks, I could I could still be there and it still wouldn't be completed. And um, so I suppose it's that kind of we'd say that 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 kind of combined type ADHD combined type. It's that real intense focus. And then at the same time, that real difficulty with um, planning out different stages or planning out how to complete a task or whatever. I was always the person who I got one instruction and I'd fly with the one instruction and I was gone as people were sounding the second or the third instruct, uh, instruction at me so much so that I'd have to come back and I couldn't retain it all at once. It, you know, so many different things, I suppose, so many, so many different things. But there's one thing that comes to mind as a young adult. And I know that it was my, I, I was pregnant with my second son and my my gynecologist, my OBGYN at that time um, said to me, you're going to have to slow down. Um, and I remember saying to my sister-in-law very indignantly, they want me to slow down and sure aren't I grand? I'm so slow now. It isn't, I could nearly be at a standstill and she looked, the belly is out there. And I remember her saying, do you not recognise that your slowing down is actually my normal? I can like, and she does, she's not identified as a neurodivergent individual. So there was absolutely that kind of, I was kind of going, um, all right, okay. And kind of going, Jesus, that's because she doesn't have the same energy as me. But now retrospectively, actually, that's one of the, the key things that has come back, come back to me again and again and again as a person who was more recently identified as an ADHD. Yeah, interesting. Uh, those moments where you're like, wait a minute, not everybody is like this. Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> good, good information to know. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious. Um, you know, I love to ask if you could rename ADHD to something a little less confusing in terms of its acronym. Would you call it something else? Absolutely. First of all, remove the bloody word disorder and remove the bloody word deficit in the name of God Almighty. Just remove it. That's it. Just take it. Just get rid of it. Stop pathologizing and medicalizing this condition is is my genuine, genuine opinion. I kind of think that if we were to focus on individual strengths and utilize areas of strength to support um, any challenge that they might have, um, I kind of think that we'd be on a much better footing. I think that it needs to be shifted to be moved from that kind of real medicalized, pathologized idea to one of unique individual uh, perspective and I was, I was kind of playing with this and I'm not like I, I'd like to think that I'm creative and I can be very creative insofar as I can get get things done very very quickly and I can kind of once I start a logical pattern and um, a kind of a logical thought pattern I can become very creative in my thinking but creativity from a let's think about this out of my imagination piece because I'm autistic as well that can be a bit a bit challenging is the way I'm going to put it but I've been thinking about this and I was thinking that actually something like the triple A might work better. Um, a, the, the triple A standing for 
alternative augmented attention. So that kind of a profile piece, I suppose, alternative because it's alternative to the the 98 point whatever percent of the population who aren't uh, who don't have that wonderful, unique perspective and then augmented, I suppose, as it allows, I, I suppose it enables and it, it allows for a person or a learner, I suppose, to creatively think and learn and to bring their unique perspective to the table. So I kind of think a triple A, I think that might that might work. I love it. It would be confusing in the U.S. because we have the American Automobile Association. And so but it's funny because I always talk about how I, I often wish I had a triple A card for my diagnosis because I spend so much time doubting, you know, did I get this wrong? Did I trick my doctor? You know, all of those ways in which I am always questioning the diagnosis itself that I often wish I had like a wallet size card that that reminds me that yes, I have been diagnosed officially and all of that. So, but I do, I do agree in terms of, you know, how it's labeled by its deficits. It's labeled according to the sort of you know negative needing to manage traits, which is so frustrating because I think so much of it is really about finding the environment that is, uh, and the environment and the and the strategies and the schedules that work for you and your brain and and living your best life uh, as a result. There's two points, I suppose. One is that we speak about the mental health of young people. We've mentioned about it. We've spoken about it already. The reality is is that when you tell a child that they are disordered in any way you're going to compound the mental lack of mental well-being piece for that young person. So I suppose if no, if for no other reason, that's a good enough reason to just lift it out, just remove it and figure like rephrase it. Do you know? Yeah. Cause I had this conversation very early on with my husband when I was first diagnosed, which he was very worried, you know, cause I was like, okay, if I'm diagnosed, look at our kids. And, and so we started looking at them and he was very nervous about the label of ADHD and, and that diagnosis. And, and I would, you know, was explaining like, well, they're going to get labeled either way. So either they're going to get labeled as being, you know, depressed or lazy or all the things I was labeled with. This kind of label can be more freeing. It can, it can really open a, a window into kind of how to advocate for themselves. But at the same time, you're right. Like there is something really terrifying about labeling your child with a disorder when really like when you, the more you understand, the more it's not, it, it, the disorder is only in relation to the inability to conform in a certain environment that is asking too much of you, <laughs> like school classrooms and all of these ridiculous environments that we're putting kids into where they're unable to conform. I guess I was trying to think of a different word, but that's the best word. Absolutely. The other thing I would say is that uh, in relation to that environmental piece, there's a great guy here in the UK. His name is Dr. Luke Beard, and he's one of the, the senior autism professors or lecturers rather in Sheffield Hallam University. And he speaks very clearly like he, his golden equation, self-professed, as he always says, is um, autism plus environment equals outcome. And the reality is, is that Anything plus environment equals outcome. So a positively situated environment will always, always, always equal a positive outcome for a child. And um, in the same way that a negative environment will always, um, will a, a negative environment will always, always, always result in a negative outcome for a child. So I suppose let's swap the autism with ADHD. ADHD plus environment equals outcome. I kind of think that it's a really good a good way of explaining how important it is that these environments are structured and created to best suit the needs of our kids. And there's another guy as well who is Dr. Damien Milton. He works in, I think he's in Kent University, um, and he speaks about the double empathy problem. Um, and again, I think in the same way that it applies to autism, because he speaks about it in the context of autism, it can be applied to ADHD. And I suppose essentially he speaks to communication difficulties arising when autistic individuals are expected to engage with with non-autistic individuals because the, there's that difference in neurotype and um, the reality is is that when we think about autistic individuals and other autistic individuals communicating and interacting with each other there's not that same level of difficulty the same again can be said for ADHD is because the reality is is that when you see and meet and you mentioned it earlier on around that kind of finding your tribe and surrounding yourself with like-minded people and so on it speaks to that kind of neurotype and same neurotype engaging so wonderfully together and creating these wonderful positive experiences oh yeah yeah when I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. 
I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womeninadhd.com coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The Lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. And so I get asked, is it important for me to get diagnosed as an adult? I've made it this far. Do I really need a diagnosis? And I'm always sort of, my, my answer is always yes and no. Because on the one hand, I think a self-diagnosis and, and the ability to research and learn more about yourself is the most important part. I think we are in a situation right now where a formal diagnosis of ADHD can take years in some countries. And then even if you do get seen, you have no guarantee that you're going to see a medical professional who knows anything about you know what you are relating to and the questions you are having. And the, the fear of being minimized and rejected is so great that I feel like you shouldn't wait for a formal diagnosis before you really start to begin to understand yourself and begin the treatment plan. And so much of that treatment plan is internal, right? You know, for somebody who has either been diagnosed with ADHD already or is still just kind of early on in the journey of exploring her neurodivergency, relating to ADHD traits, also relating to autism traits, do you feel like it's important to seek out the autism diagnosis? I guess for a woman, for an adult woman who's questioning, I'm asking for a friend, how, <laughs> what does she do next? Does that importance of a diagnosis extend beyond just having one diagnosis of either autism or ADHD? You know, how important do you feel like it is to really kind of understand everything that's at play here? I kind of think that, first of all, from a self-diagnosis standpoint, that it's absolutely essential that people who identify as autistic or ADHDers or whomever, any any 
individual neurodivergent individual who is self-identifying isn't doing so because they're seeking out a label that doesn't make sense to them. That's the first thing I'm going to say. So I think it's really important that anybody who identifies themselves is their identification is equally valid um, to that kind of professional uh, diagnosis. So I kind of think, but for me, for me specifically, I felt that it was necessary to go about a professional diagnosis because I know you've mentioned that we can kind of research and find things out and so on and so forth. But I have no doubt because of oftentimes those kind of obsessive kind of thought patterns and so on that I'd have, I would have no doubt that I would continue to say, well, yeah, maybe I do, maybe I don't, maybe I would, maybe, did I, as you said a while ago, um, did I kind of trick my clinician? Did I, I still have those kind of thoughts as well, if that makes sense. So, so the reality is, is that if I didn't go about a professional diagnosis, I would not sit, uh, it would not settle completely for me. I needed personally the validation of a professional to, to let me know that I wasn't going mad and that, that this was absolutely my experience. Um, I suppose if my, my advice would always be for anybody who has that kind of a thought process where it's kind of that up and down and up and down, but they know that they're always going to be the person who's going up and down and that it's, it's not potentially not, not ever going to sit one way or the other, that then I do think that it is worth looking to a professional to validate what is going on. What I do think is essential to that, though, is sourcing a clinician or a professional who actually has a background in neurodivergent conditions, who actually has a genuine understanding of neurodivergent conditions in all of their glory, not just in those very stereotypical presentations, but also in those kind of more nuanced presentations. I think wherever possible, um, for me, at least, I suppose, because of my experience, I think that it's that it's worth saying that if you had the opportunity to access an assessment with a neurodivergent clinician or professional, all the better, because they're, they're, there's just that additional layer of empathy, understanding and kindness that you're going to be met with. Mm, yeah, I, that that was really moving. I, when I was listening to your interview that you did with your son on your own podcast as your sort of coming out interview uh, when you were diagnosed, I loved what you said about you know your advice to clinicians, which is when somebody is seeking a diagnosis, they're not coming to this casually. They have they are relating deeply. They are seeing patterns throughout their whole life. You know, nobody just sort of thinks they want to fake it, <laughs> and so to have that. To have that empathy and to have that the kid gloves um, when dealing with anybody who is coming to you and just how damaging it is to, to understand how damaging it can be for somebody seeking a diagnosis to be told by a clinician, oh, you're fine. You know, don't worry about it. I don't see anything wrong with you. Or, you know, what's the point? You're, you've gotten this far. That's another one I hear all the time, which just drives me crazy. And, you know, somebody being told by their doctor, like, what's the point? You're already, you're already, you're managing fine. You've made it this far. What, what would a diagnosis help? How would a diagnosis help you? It's bonkers. It's bonkers. Because when you think about it, many of us, many of us have experienced so many different levels of trauma right throughout the entire of our lives, right throughout uh, and trauma, not, not giant some people, unfortunately, yes, but it doesn't have to be giant trauma and um, trauma from a kind of a rejection standpoint, trauma because of not feeling like you mattered or that you were good enough and so on. And um, that kind of continuous negative internal conversation going on as a result. Um, and the reality is, is that for somebody then to say, look, you're after getting this far, they not only disregard your question around yourself, but they're also disregarding and dismissing all of uh, all of what it takes for you to continue to be able to navigate the world every day without this information. Do you know? So I suppose my advice to anybody who's met with somebody like that is, do you know what? Swap doctors, find somebody who is absolutely going to listen. Yeah. And yeah. And then don't stop. Trust yourself. Trust your experience. Absolutely. Um, which is difficult, obviously, for us. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, I think really listen to that voice, however tiny it is deep within you that you like you said, it's not going to go away. It's just going to niggle and it's going to stay there. And it's there for a reason. Oh, oh, my God. I'm so glad you reached out to me, Sharon. I, I'm so glad I discovered your incredible podcast, Autism Journeys. Is it still a radio show or is it a podcast or it's both? It's podcast since the pandemic. Now it's moved on to 
to uh, just podcast for now, but it will, fingers crossed, move back into the, the realm of radio again, please God, short. Like, um, I suppose, you know, there's loads of information. And I suppose just to preface that as well with, we'd say my position. So I'd be always, we'd say, looking to the strengths of individuals. But what I will say is that when the podcast first started, when the show first started, I interviewed different individuals um, and so on. I know that some people get a little bit cross, um, but I actually choose to leave some of the earlier podcasts up there because when I first started, there was more pathologized language used. It was autism spectrum disorder and so on. Um, And I suppose as I started figuring things out, obviously there was that transition. But initially, at least there was that kind of there was the more pathologized language. And I suppose one of the reasons that I leave all of this, uh, all, all podcasts up there regardless, is because it shows, if nothing else, the journey that we have taken in the last five years and where we were five years ago to where we are now is hugely different. It is so, so important to recognize that journey and to recognize that if we want to support people in like as they navigate their autism journey, that it's important that they're aware of where we were so that we don't go back there and so that we continue to move forward. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of the first episodes that I published of this podcast. <laughs> I was in such a different place and people ask me, where should I start with the podcast? And I always say, you know, if you're just getting diagnosed, start at the beginning, because that's where I was. I was at the beginning of my diagnosis journey, too. So I was asking probably a lot of the same questions you're asking now. And it's such a wealth of information. There's so, the conversations and the interviews are top notch. They're fantastic. And I really applaud you and the work that you are doing in this incredible journey you've been on. But in addition to the radio show, you also do public speaking and, and what, how can people find you? What's your website and can they work with you? So my website is autismjourneys.ie. So whatever the www.autismjourneys.ie. I'm on Facebook, Autism Journeys Radio Show and Podcast. And I'm on Instagram as well. I think it's autism.journeys on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I'm very inactive on Twitter. I find it difficult to hold too many balls in the air. Um, But I suppose, um, you know, isn't it, isn't it? I think we definitely, I've met a like-minded and kindred spirit today, definitely without doubt. If people want to contact me, they can. I know on the website specifically, there's email, there's phone numbers, there's there's social media, there's everything. LinkedIn, everything is on the website. So that's probably the easiest place uh, to touch base if anybody wanted to find out more. Or actually, if, if somebody wanted to even find out about more about the podcast and so on, all of that information is there. Yeah. Oh, so wonderful. Well, thank you again, Sharon. It's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you and pick your brain and and hear more about your story. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've absolutely loved having a chat with you today. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <music>